This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager. Joining me, as always, is our pastor of uh, spiritual formation, education, discipleship. Which which one are we doing today, Sam? <laughs> I know. We're, we're, we're in the process of picking a new one. Reverend Sam Caston-Smith. Well, you know, you and I have talked about the fact that, that there was a, it was a buzzword for a time, formation. Everything had to yeah. be a formation. Never a fan. Never a fan of that title, and and you've you've always been the education pastor. You know that's kind of your thing, teaching the Bible, teaching, and and that's how we make disciples. So I kind of like either education or discipleship. Either one's yeah. good with me. So I like but, education. Let's go with that one. Okay. So when you land, we'll call you the pastor of education, Reverend Sam Caston Smith. <laughs> <laughs> and we are back uh, this week again in Genesis uh, chapter one. Last week we covered the the first chapter of Genesis from the the standpoint of theories about creation and how things might have taken place and ways that you could interpret the text. And But this week, we're looking at it more from the standpoint of the message that's there in chapter one of Genesis, where we see the message of the gospel, even at the very beginning, at the creation of all that there is, we'll find the gospel. Sam, that mm-hmm. to me is, you've talked many times about the gospel in Genesis. Was that one mm-hmm. of your books? Did you write uh, that? It's the Gospel of Creation. Gospel of Creation. Okay. I knew, I knew you had done a book on this. It's uh, all the Old Testament. Well, you know, I'm learning to appreciate Genesis more, just like I've dragged you into maybe looking at Paul a little differently, <laughs> you know. Um, but So I think this is a really cool premise. Why don't you kind of uh, set us up for that? How, how does the Gospel show up in an, in an account of creation? Yeah, so so one of the things that you kind of have to brace yourself for before you start talking about this, because uh, it really shows the sovereignty of God. He knows the end before the beginning, like he is sovereign over this entire story. God is not caught by surprise when we get to the fall. Um, and so in the story of creation, long before you have the fall of man, you see these patterns that emerge that are all pointing you to this glorious, glorious redemption that he already has planned out in Christ. And so uh, we talked last week about how the the purpose of Genesis and the creation account is not so much about the how. Right. It is very, very much about the why. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you just walk through Genesis 1, you walk through Genesis 2, and again and again and again <laughs> – the, the stories, the way that they're laid out, they are all pointing you to Christ. They're pointing you to see that your redemption is patterned even from the opening verses of the creation narrative. It's, it's really pretty wonderful, actually. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, in what sense is like, is that the idea that he's preparing a place for, for us to be? Is that? So, yeah, I mean, you, right out of the gates, it's telling you, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? There is all of the formula that is necessary and, and the way that we define the universe, you know, in the beginning. So he's launching time, right? God created the heavens. He's launching space and the earth. He's, that's matter. And so it's bringing this idea that from, from outside of everything we know, God is bringing everything forth. He is the one who dwelled before time, space, and matter. And then it starts going into, like, you get to verse 2, and nobody ever stops to think about this, but it's really pretty fascinating. Verse 2 describes the universe in not so pleasant terms. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And you have to stop for a moment there and ask yourself or realize God does not make the world perfect right out of the gates huh yeah that's true so why 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 in the world would he do that you know like he's he's god he shows that he can bring you know stars by just speaking them into existence he can do whatever he wants by the power of his word and yet at the instant that creation comes forth he doesn't make it perfect he wants to teach us something and he's very deliberate and bringing forth a universe that's not yet good 
or very good. As you'll see, when chapter one ends, it says, and everything was very good. Well, why not start that way? God wants to show us how he goes about making things very good from being ugly and empty and void and dark. What process does God employ to make things very good? And it's this is actually devotional. It's really beautiful, actually. I've always seen the uh, the you know without form and void and darkness and face of the deep as being sort of a picture in my mind of the earth was barren of life. It was dead. Mm-hmm. I see death in that, and then totally. God brings life forth that's always been my angle on it i don't know if that's the totality of it obviously but i I do feel like when i hit verse two i'm like "Ooh, the earth was dead and Mm -hmm. then after god filled it with life it was very good so life is very good (laughs) yeah and and that's those things are those two things pretty much darkness and deep waters which is what's described in verse two those are going to become the obstacles of life. And so as he goes in creation, God goes to work overcoming darkness, and he's going to go to work overcoming the the waters that kind of suffocate the surface of the earth, mm. and he is going to make a sanctuary for the man. And all of this is very instructive. So when you go through scriptures, before we even get there, it's helpful to recognize that throughout the Bible, waters are almost always – deep waters are almost always symbolic – of death or judgment. And and you can kind of walk through. So right out of the beginning, it's the waters that suffocate the world and keep life from emerging on the surface of the earth, right? Animals, humans, we can't, plants that we can't dwell there. And so then you fast forward and you get to Noah. And what you're going to notice is God will use the waters to judge the wicked, but he'll deliver somebody through the waters, right? So Noah and his family are going to be delivered. Then you fast forward a little bit and you get to Moses and the next big story, major story of redemption and salvation comes when Moses is leading his people where? (laughs) Through? Through the Red Sea, sure. Through the waters, right? And the people of God make it through the waters. In other words, they're spared of death. But then Pharaoh's army pursues, and the waters are going to bring death and judgment to them. You think Jonah, you can read the Psalms where David is constantly talking about how he's in deep, or you read Isaiah where he's saying, you know, uh, God is going to spare us from the waters. You know, they will not overtake us. Or even when you get to the New Testament uh, and you come across the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. Well, stop and think about that. If the Bible, if the Old Testament has trained people to understand that these waters are usually harbingers of death and judgment, and there's this great storm, and here comes Jesus, and he's treading, you know, don't miss that. He's treading on top of the waters. What does that suggest? That he's over, he's over death, that he's, right. Absolutely right. So he has authority over death and judgment. Mm -hmm. And then Peter says, you know, command me to come out onto the waters. And then the Lord says, come. And Peter gets out. And so long as Peter has faith, what does he do? He can walk on the water by the power of faith. And so, and then when he turns his eyes away from Jesus, then he sinks. And it shows, you know, the the power of faith in that circumstance. Yes, don't don't look down, Peter. Don't look down. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And so right out of the gates, you have these these two conditions, light, or I'm sorry, darkness and waters Mm -hmm. that are the impediments of life and flourishing. Mm. And God is going to go to work. And well, how does he go to work? So this is this is right out of the gates. He says, okay, you want to know how I overcome darkness, which is, you know, always symbolic of what? Death. It's 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 death. It's sin, wickedness. However, mm-hmm. whatever you want to say, and then waters, which are death and judgment, throughout the rest of Scripture. How do I overcome them? And he starts. He goes to work. And so, what do we see? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's like the picture is that the Spirit of God is just ready to pounce, like to 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 take action, to do something, right? Mm. And, and verse 3 says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So, so get this. Everything's empty. Mm-hmm. Everything's dark. Everything's barren and lifeless and void and empty. And then the Spirit moves. The Word of God, God said, the Word of God is spoken, let there be light, and there was light. And then it says, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Well, that's the story of conversion. That's the story of salvation for each and every one of us. Like if I were to 
if I were to go back into my story and say, okay, this is what it looked like when I came to Christ, you know, it's very much like that, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, my life was without form. It was without purpose. It felt empty. It was dark. It, I, I needed something. I needed life. It felt like there was just death all over me. And then what happened? Well, the Spirit of God began to move in my heart. And when the Word of God was spoken to me, the Spirit had made my heart receptive and then the Bible, the New Testament, will repeatedly claim, at that moment, I became a child of light, right? I became mm-hmm. the light of the world, just as, as Christ is the light of the world. And then the process of sanctification, what does God do? He talks about this in Ephesians, how he separates light from darkness, mm-hmm. for light can have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, is the New Testament. And so right there in the first four verses of Scripture – you get this pattern of how and, – and the New Testament's going to talk about this in the same – Paul will use these metaphors, how, how we become light. You know, we're light in the Lord. We're called out of darkness. Mm-hmm. It's the same pattern. And so right out of the gate, he's laying down, okay, I'm, I'm intentionally making th- everything from the beginning not very good, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. intentionally in order to show you how I'm going to make it very good. And the same way he does with creation, he does with you and me. I think he's also um, showing us that he has authority and power over mm-hmm. these things. He has he has the authority and the power to deal with sin and to deal with death and to deal with judgment. You know, those things are, God transcends those. You know, he's not subject to them. He's over them. Um, and I think that's also a good message there from the, from the very yeah. beginning. Yeah, and, and one of the things it, it, it's helpful for me is right out of the beginning, from the very beginning, you know, it's almost like this is a purpose statement. You know, the the darkness, he, he's, he's not overwhelmed by it. Like, he brings beauty out of it. And so those of us who feel like we're walking in darkness or walking in the void or walking where it doesn't feel like life is flourishing, you know, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, when they come together – produce beautiful things they redeem and you are never beyond the power of god to radically change you Mm. and out of the gates he's showing you this is the kind of god i am i am the god that brings light out of darkness Mm. one of the things that has that spoke to me personally about the reality of my own that conversion experience was the fact that I'm naturally and, and Sam will laugh when I say this, folks, I'm going to say this and see, I've not prompted him. I'm naturally a skeptical and argumentative person. <laughs> see? Yep, yep. That's it. That's my personality. I'm a skeptical and argumentative person. If you tell me something, my first response is not to believe you and to want to argue about it. And I don't know why I'm wired that way, but that's just the way that I'm wired. And, I recognize it about myself. I fight against it sometimes, but that's just the way I am. And when I was, and I've been this way my entire life, as far as I know. Um, and and so my conversion took place at a young age. I was 14. I was in high school. I'd been raised in church. I thought I was smart. I thought I knew. I, I mean, I did. I could quote to you, quote back to you, because I'd been through confirmation class. I had the star. You know, I did well. <laughs> I could quote to you Luther's catechism sections of it. I I knew scriptures. I knew I knew the the the, the, the sacred books. I had all this stuff. Right. I was re- I was really well prepared for this conversation. And when somebody handed me a gospel tract and began to explain to me that the verses I thought I knew meant something different than what I thought they meant or said they meant, I knew with an absolute and utter certainty that I was hearing the truth, that this person was telling me the truth. Um, And that was the moment that I came to faith. That was the moment that I made that decision. As you say, that the the light entered and, and I became the child of God. And one of the things that's always that the reason that I keep looking back at that and saying that was a genuine experience in the years since that the times when I've struggled with doubt or I've struggled with my, you know, sin nature that I can't get control of and whatnot. I've been able to look back in that and say, I remember that particular miracle when God delivered me from darkness into light. I remember that I was absolutely sure and it's completely against my nature 
that I was hearing the truth. Mm-hmm. So I do think that that's uh, that contrast between the light and the darkness. I think the the reason that he does that or describes that here too is so that we can have that confidence in the reality of our conversion experience. Yeah. I, I can remember when I was struggling. I was raised up in a, in a Catholic home. You know, we we went to church occasionally. I was an altar boy when I was little, you know, which <laughs> anyway, that's that's for another time. But I can remember when I started getting out into life, you know, I was this, you know, wide eyed young man coming out into the world with big ambitions. And I started to realize, my goodness, this this life, is this really all there is? You know, am mm-hmm. I waking up and doing these things and I feel so empty and nothing satisfies and I'm chasing everything down and nothing seems to satisfy? And I can remember the kind of hopelessness that, that came from that feeling mm-hmm. and, and just longing, searching, even pleading with God before I really even knew him. You know, change this, please, like, take this feeling away. I felt so... I don't depressed, I think is not too strong of a word. And there was a guy in the office next to me. I worked at a financial consulting firm at the time, and the guy in the office next to me came and, and kind of like you, you know, started talking with me about what the gospel meant and, you know, sharing the Bible with me. And it was like hope just penetrated through all that hopelessness. And, you know, when I, when I read Genesis, like we're talking about, like I really did. I felt so empty mm-hmm. but and the fact that i was wrestling like i can look back and go man the spirit of god was all over me he was made he was the one who was giving me that sense of hunger that realization that we're made for more than this you know it's like he was just ready to pounce my heart was so longing for something you know in this world just had nothing for it and then the word of god was shared and guess what Boom! It, like like you're talking about, you know, I challenged and I questioned, but it satisfied. And the mm-hmm. more I've gotten to know Jesus, the more, you know, He really does shine in my heart and satisfies and brings beauty and life and and fulfillment. Whereas before the Spirit, you know, was actively at work and before the Word was shared, it was it was just like creation's described here, empty. And so, God, and so God said, let there be light, and, and there was yeah, light, you know. That's uh, dead on. And and so even, I, I love this. I, I remember I got this from, from Dr. Gage, but he pointed out in verse 5, and we read kind of right by this. It says, God called the light day, and he, the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And and what's weird about that? Um, he has day and night and then he has evening and morning so he's yeah. reversed the order of them yeah that's right and so like if, i if got I it right t- okay cool <laughs> we didn't have that planned in advance i got it right okay but i mean if you went to anybody on the planet really and you said hey tell me about your day right you know we tend to think well i woke up and i brushed my teeth took a shower got dressed for work came to work da 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 went around about my day came home did some stuff and then i went to bed and that's the way we typically think of our day. And the Bible comes to us and says, no, 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 no. That is not the way you chronicle your day, even though all of us still do it anyway. The way that you chronicle your day is evening and morning, mm-hmm. the first day, it says. And so why would God do that? You know, what is, what is he communicating in that simple statement? Is he saying, look, the darkness comes before the light, Mm. The the lying down and closing the eyes and appearing as though you have entered into a state of death, really, sleep, comes before the rising up and the opening eyes and, and coming to life, the resurrection. And that's the, that's the idea, is even from the beginning, God is saying, okay, here's all the, the ugly world, and I'm going to go to work, and I'm going to make it beautiful. Evening, the darkness, the lying down is going to come before the morning, the light, the resurrection. And so those are the patterns that are going to be continued throughout the rest of Scripture is this idea of of suffering coming before glory, Mm. darkness coming before the morning. Um, But God always has this hopeful, optimistic, beautiful ending and so the people of God, when you see the character of God is always to bring the beautiful ending after the darkness, mm-hmm. it gives you, it gives you, a, when you understand his character, it gives you that 
built-in hope where you know, man, things are really bad right now. <laughs> and I don't know I don't know how how he's going to accomplish this. I don't see how it's going to look on the other side, but I know that it's just in God's nature that he always redeems the darkness. He's mm. always bringing about joy in the morning. Mm. Um, and that, even that, is really wonderful. I've often thought, too, that um, the, the pictures I think of, when I think of Noah and the ark, or when I think mm-hmm. of Moses and the Exodus, in both of those situations, God preserves life and delivers through the water. Mm-hmm. Not He doesn't make the water go away. The, the, it doesn't disappear. It's like God brings us through it. The only way out is through. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's times when, you know, you feel like, why am I going through these things? Why doesn't God deliver me from this? And you're like, you know, God brings us through things, but but he does deliver us he does preserve us but then but we have to go through there's not a, there's not an option to avoid the red sea you've got to go through the red sea. you know mm-hmm. that it, it, they, and this will probably get cut out but one of my favorite uh you know pushbacks against this thing was it became popular at one point when they were trying to disprove the miracles surrounding the exodus and they mm-hmm. said um oh no, no 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 it wasn't the red sea it was the sea of reeds and that was referring to a marshy area that was probably only about six to twelve inches of water and and so that's why the the israel could pass through there i said at, at which point i would say to them so that's an even better miracle because <laughs> yeah. because it wasn't just that he that he parted the waters and made the ground dry so that Israel could pass through it. Instead, the real miracle is that he drowned Pharaoh's army in all of those chariots in six inches of water. <laughs> That's amazing, you know. And they're like, That's kind "Shut of up!" Fun I, to imagine. Shut up! What, I don't want to talk to you like? anymore. You know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't know if that'll make it in or not. But if I got, if it's, it, make it cut for time, folks, or you may find that as amusing as I did. But that was. Uh, that's, that's a sampling of the smart aleck nature that Mark has that he was talking about earlier. Yes, that is, in fact, my <laughs> smart aleck, irreverent nature. But so, um, so then we, you know, we have light coming out of darkness. We, mm-hmm. we have, and, and conversely, we've got the darkness before the light. Um, but now he's going to separate the, the, he says that he creates an expanse in the midst of the waters and separate the waters from the waters. And, and he's going to create what heaven and earth. He's going to, he's going to create dry land. Yeah. So, so think of it this way on day two, on days two and three, God doesn't really, at least except for vegetation, he's not, he doesn't create anything new, on day two, he takes the waters and he separates the waters so that they form the skies and seas out of that pre-existing water is the idea. So okay. one is the heavens. It's not heaven as in like the place where God lives. It's the skies. And so he, he makes the skies above, the atmosphere, the clouds, all that stuff. And then he makes the sea uh, beneath. And then on day three, so that on day two, he's separating vertically, right? Right. So then on day three, he goes to work separating the waters horizontally and land emerges. And when you get to verse 11, it says, and so, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And the idea behind this, you know, God calls the dry land up out of the earth. And this is the third day. But stop for a moment and think about what God has just done in these first 11 or 10 verses of Genesis is on day one, he's overcome the darkness, right? Mm-hmm. He is he has put down the darkness. Light has emerged and triumphed. Then on days two and three, God is contending with these emblems of death and judgment, the waters, right? He's making a sanctuary for man to live in, the land, the dry land where man will eventually find life. And God does all of this in three days. So so notice this. He he overtakes the darkness and he overtakes the waters, the emblems of sin, death, and judgment in three days. And it's on the third day that organic life emerges from the ground. The first life that the world ever sees comes forth on the third day. Mm. And, you know, when I first came across this teaching, I thought, you know what, like, that's a little much. Like, are, are you sure that God means for us to see salvation in the way that he put those first three days together? 
But he verifies this. He validates it because in other stories, other great stories of salvation and deliverance that you find later on in the scriptures, it echoes this. It's really, really kind of fascinating. And one of the most famous ones you mentioned just a little bit ago is is the story of the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. So in the story of the Red Sea, you have uh, the the Israelites are escaping out of Egypt, right? They had been slaves, and God is calling the Israelites to escape. Moses is going to lead them. The Passover happens. God strikes down the firstborn of Egypt, and Pharaoh says, get out of here. So Moses and the Israelites bail right after the Passover meal. Don't have they to sp- ask me twice. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, And they spend a couple of days traveling. They camp overnight, and then they get against the Red Sea, and they're stuck there, right? This isn't the Sea of Reeds where they can walk across it. They're stuck. And so they're thinking, oh, great, you know, we're trapped against the sea. But the bad news is is Pharaoh's had a change of heart. And so Pharaoh, who is a king, who is crowned with the image of a serpent, is chasing after Moses, right? And he's pinned him in the middle of the night against the Red Sea. So what are these great obstacles that that are happening and Exodus chapter 14, what are the great obstacles? Well, it's... They're being chased by the serpent, and they're being by pinned the up against death. And they're pinned up against the waters right. in the middle of darkness. You mm-hmm. get it? Okay? And so if you read Gen- or, uh, Exodus chapter 14, it's pretty wild what God does. You know, here comes Pharaoh and the army, and all the Israelites, they're, you know, they're slaves. They're not trained warriors. They're going, oh my goodness, we're about to be mowed down, Moses. Why did you do this to us? And then God emerges as this pillar of fire, right? Well, what is that? It's light mm. that shines in the darkness. Well, that's kind of interesting. Okay, there it is. And then what does this pillar of fire do? This this angel of the Lord or whatever this might be, it goes in between. It comes around the Israelites and goes in between the Egyptians and the Israelites to protect them. And you know what it says? In Exodus 14, verse 19 says this, Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Okay, so you've got you know this light shining in the darkness that now comes between them. And get what it says. It says, Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night. And so what do you hear in that? Okay, so here you've got the Israelites pinned against the sea. They're coming. They're being confronted by the dangers of darkness and waters and the serpent king that's coming after them. Light shines in the midst of darkness, comes between the Egyptians and the Israelites, and it gives it separates the light and the darkness. Do you hear that? Mm-hmm. And so what happens then is Moses is going to go to the sea, stretch out his hand over the sea, And then it says, all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind. Now, that's not accidental either, because the word wind in Hebrew, sorry for nerding out here, but the (laughs) word wind in Hebrew is ruach. It's the same identical word as the spirit. So, what do you hear there? If you're reading this in Hebrew, you're hearing the spirit comes atop the waters, and it turns it to dry land. The waters are divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry land with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. So what has God just done? And in this salvation story, he's just replayed the circumstances of Genesis. You know, the, the spirit of God hovering above the waters, the light emerging, separating light and darkness, the, the, the ruach going upon the surface of the waters, the waters parting, dry land emerging, and life is going to emerge on this day. And incidentally, uh, this is the third day since they left Egypt. They come out on the other side, and this day is celebrated on the Hebrew calendar on Nisan 17. It's right after Passover. You know what else happens on Nisan 17, not accidentally? Mm. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm. You know what else happens on Nisan 17? Noah's Ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat. So, so the Bible is very intentionally drawing our minds to understand that these stories are related. They're pointing to one another, mm-hmm. um, which is you know out of Genesis chapter one, which is pretty pretty awesome. What it says, where it, you know, it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus, it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Um, I was. I found myself 
just fascinated by this idea that that God acted to keep the Egyptians away from Israel while Israel was there at the Red Sea. Um, so I just went, my squirrel brain went off. I was thinking about well, why did why did he? you know hold the egyptians off was it the fact that the that the wind had to blow for a while to move the waters and dry the ground out and you know that kind of thing what does it mean that it was an east wind i've never noticed he said it was an east wind before life comes out of the east in the ancient world particularly in egypt like everything death oriented in egypt like if you go there the all the pyramids and all the tombs they put on the west side of the nile because it's oh, where okay. the sun sets it's like the idea of the sun is being buried and so it's the the side of death okay east so a strong east wind that's where the sun rises that's where life happens uh, god comes from the east jesus will return from the east there's there's all these kinds of statements cuz the hmm. east is associated with life hmm. so and kind of fascinating it is you know well and it's an it's another example of how all of these things are very purposeful mm-hmm. that that god chooses to do you because you, you you say well why did he do one and not the other well maybe we could say it was random once or twice like yeah god just picked something here you know he had to pick one or the other and this is the one he picked but when you start to add up all of these images and all of this mm-hmm. all of the symbolism of this that's the point where it becomes impossible to ignore that he's really trying to draw our minds to something and, and show us something here mm-hmm. um, that's the you know yeah. that's the cool thing about scripture is that is that yeah it's it's 66 different books and it was written by all these different writers over time but it's one author and it's one story and all of these things are working together to call our mind to a particular thing which in this case is the gospel it's it's Christ mm-hmm. it's the resurrection yeah and and those it's interesting that these different stories that are that are coming out of Genesis right now Genesis is actually anticipating it's foreshadowing baptism um, you know, we just talked about Noah. We talked about the Red Sea. It's interesting that if Paul, when he's talking about baptism, compares the crossing of the Red Sea to a baptism, mm-hmm. the Apostle Peter will compare baptism to Noah's Ark. And why is that? Well, what happens with Jesus when he's baptized? You know, he, he goes down into the waters. It says that the Spirit comes hovering above Jesus, right? Well, what does that make you think of? Here you have the Spirit above the waters again. And the whole point of the baptism, Jesus is is inaugurating one, that's the inauguration of his ministry, so all things are being made new, right? He's launching mm-hmm. this new ministry. He's going to, to enter into this, you know, to fulfill all righteousness for the sake of man. But it's baptism is very specifically uh, Paul says that it's a picture of death and resurrection right you go you go down into the waters as a burial to your former way of life dying to your former way of life and you come out this kind of a little harder with sprinkling but you come out and and and, and Romans 6 says that it's to newness of life it's a resurrection so so it's Paul is saying when when the Israelites are going through the waters what is that it's it's actually a picture of death, and they're coming out the other side, and they're inaugurated as a new nation. Israel is resurrected to a brand new people, mm. and it totally gets that. The same with Noah and the ark. Like, humanity had become so corrupted, then God brings the waters, and Noah and his family are going to bring about this idea of, of a new humanity. It's always a new beginning, and so creation gives this picture of a new beginning. Uh, the the Noah's Ark as a new beginning. Mm. The Red Sea is a new beginning. Christian, the baptism of Jesus is the beginning of his ministry. Your baptism shares in this story, mm. you know, where the Spirit, in a sense, is coming down. With, with Noah, what is it? It's the dove that comes hovering over the waters. Well, the Spirit is associated with a dove in mm-hmm. Scripture. And so here you have this, you know, the dove hovering over the waters announcing that the flood is over and there's a brand new beginning. Life is emerging hmm. again. And the Bible is – and this, by the way, is written by multiple different authors, and they're all picking up on this. It's almost like the Spirit inspired this or something, <laughs> you know. But but that's what we're to pull out of this right out of the beginnings. We read this like you know we talked about last week, like it's a technical manual on how right. to create a universe, and God is singing about baptism and resurrection, and you know mm-hmm. like that's what He's after. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's also um, 
you know, when you read the Old Testament, I think that I would I would say that arguably one of the most significant events, something that Israel keeps coming back to, is the crossing of the Red Sea, is the Exodus being delivered from mm-hmm. from Egypt. It's like they just keep hearkening back to that, like you know, as it happened when this. Remember when that God did this, and it's mm-hmm. always pointing back to the Exodus. Um, and we've talked and how many about, times does God enter, introduce Himself as I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Correct. Yeah. And and one of the other things that that you're to pick up on in in Hebrew whenever you find phrases that are repeated again and again mm-hmm. and again and again it's very deliberate. You know, it's it's you're to get it into your head this is how things happen. And there are two phrases in Genesis 1 that are both repeated 10 times. The first one is and God said. God said. God said. God said. And so that's to drive into our mind, how does God go about bringing new beginnings? How does God create? How? Mm. And the answer is what? He speaks it. He speaks it. Yeah. And other, his word makes things new. Well, mm-hmm. there's, there, there's application in that for us, big application. For one, you know, how are, how are we to be made new? How are we to find resurrection? Well, we need God's word. Well, that's that's wonderful. And John one, when Jesus is first introduced, we're told in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says, "And the Word became flesh." Well, if the Word is God and the Word became a man, guess who that is? Jesus. Right. He is the one who makes all things new. And so, if you're at a spot where you feel like your life is overwhelmed with emptiness and purposelessness and it's formless and void and dark and you know you feel like there's just no flourishing going on you need the word of god to come and speak a new beginning mm-hmm. into you and the word is jesus he is the one who brings new life he's the one who has the power of resurrection he is the word made flesh mm-hmm. and we also have the word on a printed page it's in the bible like there is something in the Bible there. It's the power of God in his word that when you study it and you bury it into your heart, it yields life. You know, mm-hmm. it takes doing it to know that it does. It's kind of hard to take on faith. You know, if you've never done it, you know, hearing two guys talking <laughs> on a <laughs> podcast to say, oh, yeah, I believe that reading a book is going to really change my life. But you and I both know that the more we come to understand God through his word and in his word, it radically it radically changes us. Sure. It really does breathe life into you. Sure. And so new beginnings, mm-hmm. resurrection comes by the power of God's word. So you need to get God's word into your life. Mm-hmm. That means Jesus, that means the scriptures. We've gotten to the the third day where God has brought forth life, you know, on the dry land, out from the waters, and now we come to the next day where, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And then it talks about creating the sun um, and the moon, the greater and lesser lights. Mm -hmm. So... When I look at this, my first thought is that God is giving us the ability to mark time. You know, he's giving us the ability to be aware of the passage of time because we we became aware or, or the ability to measure time based on the lights that were in the heavens. The very first clocks were sundials. We measured the the march of time through the day and we measured the time of this of the seasons by how this constellations rearranged, you know. So is is that really what's going on here now? Is that God is saying, I'm the master of time? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an, a number of things that come into this. It's it's not only, you know, that God is ordered and the whole universe just moves like clockwork. I mean, mm-hmm. think about how wild that is, that the entire universe, the farthest flung stars and and galaxies, you know, all move with precision. It's not chaotic. Mm-hmm. And so he has made time very predictable um, but it also enables us to be in a rhythm of life you know morning and evening you know seasons throughout the year the way the month works and the tides and everything else uh, he is making everything very very precise and predictable one of the questions that used to bug me 
when I was going through this is, you know, he, he's talked about creating light and darkness on day one and the, you know, and days. Um, but then you don't get the sun, moon and stars until day four. And it's like, okay, well, then what constituted a day if you didn't have the sun? Um, and I think it's interesting because, you know, at the beginning, the Lord is the source of the light. And when you get to the very end of scripture, I mean, the, the, the ancients weren't ignorant of how the day worked. They weren't ignorant of the need for the sun. But when you get to Revelation, it actually talks about how um, at the end, there will be no more need for the sun, for the Lord will be its light. And it kind of reverts back to that. Mm. So where's the gospel uh, imagery in, in that, in the day four, the creation of lights? Day four introduces the the entities that kind of associate with day one. So day one is God creates light. On day four, he brings forth the entities that give forth light, the sun, moon, and stars. Um, on day two, you're going to see, you know, he creates the sky and he creates the sea. And then three days later, don't miss that. On three, three days later, on day five, you get the birds that dwell in the sky and the fish that dwell in the sea. And then on day three, you get the emergence of land and vegetation. And three days later, on day six, you're going to see, um, the, the creatures, animals and mankind that come forth and find their sanctuary on the land and depend upon the vegetation. And so you see this three day pattern that's, that's emerging. Um, where where those who reign, the birds, will reign over the sky that was created three days earlier. And so the idea when, when Christ emerges uh, from the tomb after three days, it's, it's, a, it's a signal he reigns over death. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also interesting, if you went back into the, the, early, the early church, the ancient rabbis, um, they also believed that on day four when it talks about the stars – um, that these were also the, the day of the creation of all the spiritual beings, angels, mm-hmm. demons, all all that um, came forth. And then, and there's there's times in the scripture where angels, the angelic realm, is referred to as stars mm-hmm. um, in that kind of language. Mm-hmm. Just interesting. So as we are uh, then, as we're surveying the Genesis one and looking for the looking for the message of the gospel in there, where's where's our next stop? Where do we go next? Uh, the next one, I I really love this. Um, and again, so there were ten times that Genesis says, "And God said," right? And so you get the sense that that's really important. But there's another phrase as you read through Genesis that gets almost annoying <laughs> how often it comes. And so I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read the verses where it says this so you can share in the annoyance of it. But it's it's training you to expect something. So we're starting all the way back up in verse 11. And God is saying, I'm going to give you uh, vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. He goes on and says there's going to be plants yielding seed according to its kinds, trees bearing fruit in which their seed according to their kind. You get back and you see uh, day five, and the waters are swarming with creatures according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to their kinds. And then you get to day six when he starts creating the animals. And he, like, just rapid-fire repeating of this expression. It says, And God said, verse 24, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man. Pause. You expect according to his kind. Exactly. According to their kind, right? Right. You're expecting God to say, and God said, let us make man according to their kind. But he doesn't do that. Right? All of these other creatures, it's talking about repopulating, right? Fish repopulate with their kind. That's their mate. The animals, the beasts of the earth, according to their kinds. All these different creatures have mates, and they stay in their kind, and then when it gets to the creation of man, God doesn't say, you know, let us make man in their kind. He says, let us make man in our image, mm-hmm. after our likeness. 
Well, there's an implication there that's extremely personal. Not only does it give humanity this unbelievable dignity of being made in the image of God, which has tremendous repercussions, but God is saying, hey, I'm making you and you're intended to be my kind. You're, you're going, and I mean, what's, where, where does the rest of Scripture go? That sounds inappropriate. It sounds almost blasphemous to say that. But where does the story of Scripture end? It ends with the wedding supper of the Lamb where God is taking us to be his bride. You know, it, it's, it's kind of wild. But this is a, an extremely relational statement. We tend, to, we tend to take this comment, let us make man in our image, and just say, okay, well, what does that mean? And it's super rich and it's super valuable. But God intends this to be relational. We're mm-hmm. we're being set apart for the Lord mm-hmm. to be in unique relationship with Him, and that is the gospel for the rest of the scriptures. You know, He's going to refer to Israel in terms of being His bride, His son. Um, in the New Testament, the church Jesus repeatedly refers to us as His bride. Um, you can't get more intimate in our understanding of relationships than that. And that's what God had in mind for us from the beginning. Mm. Uh, we're going to be set apart in that kind of spousal role for mm. the Lord, uh, which is awesome. And and then beyond that, being made in the image of God does have tremendous repercussions for the way that we see one another. I mean, I think that it does. I also think that it establishes a little bit of what God expected his creation to do in other words this idea that um well what is it about the image of god well we've talked about the fact that the image of god is something that would be associated with a ruler and so god is saying you know what let's we're going to make him make man in our image after our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and Mm -hmm. over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and i think that it's uh you know, it's important to realize that God expects us to be from the very beginning. He expected us to be his agents. I, I do think there's people that will will ask Christians sometimes why God doesn't get involved more directly with things. Why doesn't God just prove to everybody that he exists? Why is this even a question? If he's God and he can do anything, why does he just poof into the middle of Times Square and do something that no one can deny or whatever. Why can't he be like Superman and get rid of all the nuclear missiles in that terrible Superman 4 movie? Why doesn't God do these things? You know, why? And and I'm like, well, from the beginning, God's design was that we would be his agents, that, that he would work through us. Now, I don't know why it was that he chose to work through these flawed and fragile containers that we are, but we see right at the very beginning that God confers his image to us, which is saying, you're going to bear the image of the king. You're going to act as the king's representative to the king's lands, to the king's creations. Um, And I just think that he's revealing, you know, that one of the cool things about that is that right from the beginning, he's revealing his intention to us before we've ever earned it. It's not like God saying, let's create man and we'll decide if we want to let him have the image or not. We'll we'll create men and women and we'll see what they do with the joint. And if they don't mess it up too bad, (laughs) then they can have our image and they can be in charge. And um, no, from the beginning, God calls us out with what we can be and what we will be rather than being focused on what we are because what we haven't at the time that he said it we haven't been yet mm-hmm. um, so I do think that that's you know kind of an interesting aspect of the image of God yeah I think to pick up on some some of what you're saying there which I really love you know why did God create us in the first place is kind of one of a question that people wonder you know and it's not God sitting around bored or lonely um, the best way that I've heard of God, and I'll, I'll explain where I'm going in a minute, but God, out of this abundance of love, out of out of this wellspring of just being so loving and so creative and so magnificent, magnificent, pours himself out and creates people in which to be in relationship with, right? And then he, so when he makes the world, he makes it almost like in progress, right? He starts the world, it's formless and void, and he goes to work in creation, and by the time you get to the sixth day, he says it's very good. 
but he's still not done. Like we, we get to day six, God rests on day seven, but you know what he does? I mean, you, you jump down to what's called the cultural mandate in verse 28, mm-hmm. and it says, and God blessed them. So Adam and Eve are already there. You know, chapter two kind of expands the creation of Eve a little bit, but at this point, Adam and Eve are already there. It says, and God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, why does it need to be subdued? Again, this this begs the question, is it not subdued? And the answer to that is when God makes man and he places Adam and Eve inside the Garden of Eden, everything in the Garden of Eden was God's design, right? He makes everything beautiful. He makes it all fruitful. He's got all these wonderful plants. And then what is what is the command that he's given to, to man and woman? He's, he's saying, I want you to join my kind of work where I, you remember when I started in creation and everything was was not so good and then I made it beautiful well here I've given you this garden and the garden is not the whole earth and he's saying now I want you to take the design of this garden this really beautiful thing where everything is abundant and flourishing and everything else and now I want you to take it to the ends of the earth be fruitful multiply fill the earth and subdue it. Take this beautiful design to the ends of the earth. And it's like God is calling us. He doesn't just make the world absolutely perfect. Even though it's very good, he doesn't make the world absolutely perfect and say, okay, Adam and Eve, you just get to sit around and enjoy it. He's saying, I want you to join this creative act of transforming the uncultivated world that's outside of the Garden of Eden into a garden, into a paradise. And so we were called to join that mission. Mm. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word from on the gospel from Genesis chapter one. Uh, we hope that you have enjoyed your time with us, that uh, some of these things have given you things to think about, some of the things we've talked about. Um, next time, we'll be looking at uh, Genesis chapter two and the idea that God rested, the idea of the Sabbath. If you would like to correspond with us to ask a question or make a comment, there's something perhaps that we've said today that you would like some further explanation of. Our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O-Vistachurch.com, where you could also find all the back issues of our podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or on Spotify. We'll be back next week. We look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Water.